What if you could do actual magic? If you could change the color of a deck of playing cards? If you could know any card that was chosen without using a marked deck or a Stebbin stack or even a stripper deck? What if you could actually pull a rabbit out of a hat? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about magic, Arthur C. Clarke, and the future. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you're looking for a great volunteer opportunity, Schoolhouse.World is a nonprofit online educational platform that provides free tutoring to children from over 100 countries. Volunteers range from high school students to retired professionals. Founded during the pandemic by Sal Khan of Khan Academy fame, Schoolhouse.World helps learners build confidence, find community, and pay it forward. When my grandfather was born, many houses in the United States had no electricity. When my dad was born, cars were insanely unreliable. It was really hard to imagine transporting yourself around the country, never mind around the world. And when I was born, we still hadn't had Star Trek yet, that the World's Fair in 1964 was filled with sensational new technologies like video phones, which are sort of like Zoom calls. What happened to the future and what are we going to do about it? The future has always been filled with possibility and wonder. And getting to the future has usually caused cultures, populations, to feel a little seasick. Back when Thomas Edison demonstrated things like record players and movies, it freaked some people out. One movie of a train headed straight out of the screen so freaked people out that they were fainting in the aisles. That if you were able to do the kind of card tricks I was talking about 150 years ago, you would have been one of the richest people in town. You would have sold out theaters day after day after day. Today, if you could do those things, you might be lucky to get 10,000 views on YouTube filled with comments of people telling you they know how you did the trick. Something happened to the future along the way. If we think about Star Trek, where some of the greatest minds in science fiction thought as hard as they could about crazy things that could happen in the future. Two of them, physically impossible, teleportation and faster than light travel, are never going to happen. But the others? Oh, I know, a little device that you could flip open with a tiny sound and call anybody any time, carry it in your pocket. Oh, I know, a tricorder, and we could use it to figure out your vital signs without cutting you open. Look, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. Spock, give me a hand. You get the idea. That back when we had the early World's Fairs in the late 1800s, Cracker Jacks were a sensation. People couldn't stop talking about the invention of the ice cream cone. 
And we fast forward decade after decade, and what happens is technology, the product of industrialism and Moore's law, keeps advancing. It keeps making promises, and it keeps blowing people away. Oh, there's a piano on this plane, and it can fly from here all the way across the ocean in just six hours. Even the Concorde, which was basically a noisy, rusty, polluting vehicle flying through space to get you to London two hours sooner, was something that was worth talking about. But now? Now, Rivian comes out with a pickup truck that gets 305 miles to a charge, can go zero to 60 in three and a half seconds, is sensibly outfitted, and will probably never break. Oh, whatever. What else is new? That what we have done is created a cultural ratchet where we have run out of imagination. Since Star Trek, there aren't many examples you can give me of science fiction in movies or television that described something breathtaking happening in the future. We had computers that could talk to us in Star Trek. So her, the idea of an intelligent AI, that's not that much of a leap. Neil Stevenson wrote two breakthrough books. I recommend both of them, Snow Crash and The Diamond Age. They were 15 or 20 years ago. In Snow Crash, he accurately described cyberspace in insane detail. And in The Diamond Age, he talks about an iPad that's just a little bit smarter and more personalized than the one you already own. These were pretty big leaps, but nobody ran out of the theater gasping. Nobody had a heart attack. Nobody fainted. That Steve Jobs, if he was alive today, first of all, Apple wouldn't be doing the boring stuff they're doing. But secondly, even he would be stunned at how little interest people have in what's next. We talk about augmented reality and virtual reality. But most people, the response they have when they put on a set of Oculus goggles is not to believe that the future is so bright they got to wear shades, but it's to get a little nauseous because we've run out of the thread. Not because technology has run out of things to invent, but because we got ahead of ourselves. Because the stories that we could tell about what the future would bring, we thought up all the stories we could think of. So maybe when the aliens arrive from another planet, and maybe when fusion power works, people will be stunned. They will have nothing to do but talk about those things. But when we think about what we think about, about the future. And as Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We have a problem. The problem is we don't want magic anymore. We'd rather say, I know how you did this, and then get back to scrolling our social network. That sufficiently advanced technology, well, what would be a sufficiently advanced technology? Something that would be possible that would look like magic. Will quantum computing, with all of the power it promises, look like magic? I'm not so sure. What about life extension? The idea that with a 100 little shortcuts and steps, we can help people live 100 years, 150 years, 200 years. Or let's think for a second about medicine. A worldwide pandemic arises, a scourge that threatens to kill more people than anything in the history of humanity. And in 
record time, less than a year, a worldwide network of scientists connected by a device that we just built in the last 70 years, working together, sprint, to make a safe and tested vaccine that saves the lives of millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And yet all we want to talk about is whether or not we should be taking horseworming drugs or injecting bleach, as opposed to just standing in awe at what we were able to do, something that was unimaginable just a decade or two earlier. What about the singularity, where we start taking our consciousness and putting it, uploading it into computers somewhere? Are any of these things going to look like magic by the time they appear? What have we given up when we have given up daydreaming about the future and what it can bring and what it can hold? Because I think what we've done is created a culture worldwide where once you have a smartphone in your pocket, miracles seem like they are in short supply. Uber, Lyft, that's sort of a miracle when you think about it. So many of the apps that people take for granted on their phone. Just email, just the fact that you are listening to me today. This is something that would have gotten anyone thrown out of a meeting at CBS in 1965 as completely impossible, a magic trick that a billion people around the world would be able to communicate with another billion people around the world by audio, by video, with music, with animation, with movies, anytime they want, for free. And yet we yawn. And I'm wondering if the yawning is doing us any good. I'm wondering what would happen if we could figure out how to get back to a sense of wonder, that having a little bit of magic in our lives, or magic right around the edges of our lives, that feels like something that the young and the vibrant do. But the cynics, the ones who say nothing better is going to happen, and I know how you did that, that's sort of what happens at the end of somebody's time around here. That's sort of what happens when a culture gets tired of itself. I think what my friend Arthur was trying to get at was the context matters. That if a technology is something that we're used to, I don't know, like shoes, like aspirin, like a roof over our head, it's not magic, it's normal. We understand it, we count on it, we've come to expect it. And the context matters because if you had brought any of those innovations to the savannah a million years ago, it would have changed people's lives in a truly fundamental way. And even today, people who are on the outskirts of organized culture, who have been left behind, who haven't been granted the dignity they deserve, people in refugee camps, when you show up with these basic needs, they do feel like magic. Not the technology itself, of course, just the fact that we cared enough to bring this to someone who needed it. And then we had a hundred years where the context was just inches behind the technology. For a hundred years, you could pick up the newspaper or go to the World's Fair or read Wired magazine or turn on PBS and see another miracle. But then, then the context caught up. Then we filled in the blanks. We jumped to the end of the thread. And as a result, 
Magic is in short supply. But magic, magic isn't based on Moore's law or technology. Magic is based on our perception. We can have the magic back if we want it because we don't have to be cynical. We can take a moment to realize the miracle that is right here, right in front of us, the leverage that we have been granted, the productivity that is on offer. It's so easy to buy in to convenience and to scarcity, but maybe for just a little bit, we could buy into abundance and leverage instead. Arthur, we miss you. We need your next big idea. There are great thinkers out there who are busy inventing the next generation of possibility. And the really cool thing is, anyone who wants to can do it. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Some really good questions from all over this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Lior from Telmond, Israel. I've been thinking a lot about atmospheric cancer lately, and at times it seems like the incremental difference we can make as individuals, especially recycling, is way too little too late. And if we're going to reduce and reverse CO2 in the atmosphere, we need to think about breakthroughs in removing and sequestering carbon at scale. I was wondering if you, having participated in the Carbon Almanac, might have some thoughts on technologies that have the potential to get us back to normal, like algae farming. Thanks so much for all that you do. Thank you for this, Lior. You're bringing up a good point, which is it's very difficult to undo a system that's more than 100 years old that is based on convenience and the efficiency and profit of burning carbon from the ground. That system has enabled us to have more rich people on Earth than ever before. The percentage 
of the truly poor is the smallest it has ever been. It has created stores and the public markets and industry and everything else. And so when we walk in to a system like that and say, please cut back a little bit, please try to recycle, you are correct. A, it's not that popular, and B, it's not that effective. And so it's easy to say, well, what we really need to do is put our minds to the technology required to sequester carbon, to grab released carbon out of the air and put it back into the ground or in some other form that we can work with. And I hope that we will be able to figure that out. There are a couple challenges. The first one is this. The people who can work on that are not 99% of us. 99% of us can only work on rebuilding the system to make it more resilient and not based so much on burning carbon. And number two, the simple chemistry and physics of grabbing carbon out of the air is non-obvious. Direct air capture of carbon seems really good, but when we look at what's actually happening, it doesn't really work. It doesn't work at scale, and it's incredibly difficult and inefficient. Will there be breakthroughs there? I hope so, and some of them may be on the horizon, but it will always be really expensive. It's also super tempting once we've taken carbon out of the air to simply burn it again. And that's what the airlines hope to do, but that's not going to solve the problem. Other more organic solutions like growing algae in places and other thoughtful, clever ways of capturing carbon, they can work and they are working, but again, not at scale. So the real work to be done, in my opinion, not speaking for the Almanac, but speaking as someone who has been doing this as a volunteer for more than a year and looking at the data, the real solution is to put the market to work. That if we price carbon fairly, if we simply charge what carbon should cost based on its effects on all of us, the market will race to solve the problem. Suddenly, there will be lots of money to spend on sequestering carbon. Suddenly, products will be redesigned to use less carbon. Suddenly, things like solar and wind will become even more likely to be the right choice. So the thing we can do as a community is be a community to work with each other, to connect, to change the system. Culture has always made rules. The purpose of culture is not to enable capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to enable culture. And right now, that is our opportunity to come together to change the rules so the market can do what it does best, which is solving problems. Hey, Seth. Um, what's going on? This is AJ. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on innovation, um, specifically around uh, GPT-3 um, and artificial intelligence and, and writing. Um, so I had an opportunity to introduce that technology to a couple of different groups, and I've had some very sort of um, opposing reactions. On one end, you have people, um, specifically in the education space, who sort of turn their nose up at anything that will write or create content. Uh, and they look at it as, you know, on the surface as just cheating. Uh, but then you have the other school of thought where uh, they see the opportunity for it to accelerate what they're doing. Uh, one really good example is we had a uh, researcher use the GPT-3, GPT-3 technology and it uncovered um, different research topics for her um, that she may not have discovered on her own or it may have taken her a little bit longer. Uh, and now she's using the GPT-3 and she's asking it questions and it's creating copy and it's writing things. But 
uh, at times she discovers that gem that takes her down a different path. Um, and yes, you know, you could do that with Google as well, but Google wouldn't um, formulate the, the, the thoughts the way that the GPT-3 uh, artificial intelligence writing does. But I want to know your thoughts on both of those uh, frame of minds and what you think overall about GPT-3 uh, innovation and writing. Thank you, AJ. You know, the creative community for hundreds of years has always been sort of averse to technology. When photography came along, painters insisted that photographers weren't actually artists. You needed to have the skill to use a brush. And we can go down a long list of things that people who have worked in crafts and in art have been opposed to, like, I don't know, a potter's wheel, because a potter's wheel isn't as real as making something by hand. And the other thing that's going on is that people in the creative fields sat silently when we invented the steam shovel, when we invented the computer, when we invented all sorts of things that made it hard to make a living as a work person, as somebody who is creating their work in craft for a living, whether it's digging a ditch or running an organization. And so they're constantly having upheaval in every industry. And now it's happening to people who write for a living. And they can shame it all they want, but it's not going to go away. So the question is not, can we make it go away? The question is, what will we do with it? Because if you're writing is so predictable that it can be replaced by GPT-3, if your writing is so pedestrian that a computer can do it, you didn't deserve to make a living anyway. And things like Upwork were already chasing you down. That the opportunities here are to do what artists have always done, to create humanity and connection and possibility. And using technology to do that is something we've always done. A paintbrush used to be technology. Acrylic paint used to be seen as technology. So is GPT-3 going to make it so that a certain kind of writer is in big trouble? For sure. But I just saw a demo of GPT-3 yesterday that could watch an entire hour of a YouTube video and summarize it in two paragraphs in less than 15 seconds. It's magic and it works. I saw the summary of my TED talk and I felt like I had written that summary. So the question is not, is this technology here? The question is, what are we going to do with it? Hey Seth, this is David in Tokyo, Japan. I've always had very perfectionist tendencies. So finding your podcast has really been helping me get over the compulsion to put in excess and probably unnecessary amounts of time. But now I'm faced with a project that is halfway done that I'm considering restarting. I feel like the way that I presented it and some of the content doesn't really appeal to my intended audience nor a broader audience. In that sense, I worry that there is no audience for this project. In these kinds of situations, do you think it's best to follow through with it and hope to gain some knowledge and experience from our failures? Or do you think it's worth restarting something that has value to the community? Thank you so much for all you've done, and I look forward to hearing your insights into this. Thank you for this, David. I appreciate your work and your candor as well. Struggling with perfectionism is a real challenge because perfectionism has nothing to do with perfect. It has nothing to do with outcomes. It has to do with control and fear and resistance. It has to do with the fact that if we ship the work, we've shipped the work and our name is on it, and now what happens? And so the work that is done, in your case in Japan, to make cars better, the Lexus, 
was not designed by perfectionists. It was designed by people who understand specifications, who understand what good enough is and what it could be, but they still ship the cars even though they have never made a perfect one. Because perfectionism means I can find one thing, one thing that I can justify holding back so I will hold back. I don't think that's related to your question so much. Because if you have a project that smart people can look at and say, the world has changed since you started this project. And based on what you see now and based on what you know now, you no longer want to bring it to the world because it has no utility, then you should stop because it is a sunk cost. It is something you cannot get the time back for. But new time spent pursuing a bad project is wasted time. If, on the other hand, bringing your project to the world will help other people, whether it will help you by making a living or help other people learn or connect or see, then yes, by all means, your instincts are correct. Bring it to the world. But we must ignore sunk costs. We must lean into what is before us and make new choices based on new information. And if it feels like perfectionism, if it feels like resistance, we must ignore those feelings, dance with those feelings, and ship it anyway. But if you're being strategic and you can say, I can ship something else with the same number of resources that will help more people, then I would ship that instead. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the work you do. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.